Just a few hours north of here in the Thousand Islands is the beautiful Bolt Castle. Uh, up in the Thousand Islands, it just nestled on one of the islands up there is this castle that was built by a man named George Bolt as a, as a dedication to his wife, Louis, I, I believe, believe Louise, who is the love of his life. And he set about to buy this island, had it sort of reshaped to be the, the shape of a heart, and then sent workers there to begin construction on a castle where he and his wife and their two children uh, would live once the completion was done. And so they began work on this incredible castle. This is, these are some photos we took on one of our visits up the Bolt Castle in Thousand Islands. Tammy and I actually honeymooned in the Thousand Islands and got to visit that on our honeymoon and then have been back for subsequent visits in subsequent years. But he began work on that, that beautiful castle, really ornate and elaborate castle. And then just before the completion of the castle, he sent a telegraph to the workers who were working on the construction of the castle, ordering them to set down their tools and walk off the job because his lovely wife had passed away unexpectedly at the age of 42. And immediately the work stopped, the workers walked off the job, Mr. Bolt never returned to the scene, never returned to the island, never returned to the castle. And in fact, he ordered his children and grandchildren never to speak of the castle, never to speak of the island, never to speak of what would happen at that time. He had a granddaughter named Clover who in her 70s uh, was interviewed about the castle and she admitted that when she was a young lady, she and some of her friends had gotten on a, a midnight train and taken a train up to the Thousand Islands and took a ferry across the, the St. Lawrence River there into the Thousand Islands and onto the island where, I think it's the St. Lawrence River, right? The river, the St. Lawrence River there. Thanks for the confirmation there. Don't leave me hanging. And across the St. Lawrence River and, and onto the island and she and her friends invaded the castle that her grandfather had built and walked around. She, she admitted sheepishly that she was one of the people who wrote graffiti on the walls of the castle that her grandfather had built. She said, my grandfather would roll over in his grave if he knew that I had done that thing especially since he had forbidden them from speaking about it. But for 70-some-odd years, that house, this beautiful castle, lay subject to the weather and to the elements and to vandals and thieves who would invade. And by the time it fell into the hands of the Thousand Island Bridge Authority, it was in terrible shape, totally dilapidated, an unsafe place to be. And so the Thousand Island Bridge Authority went in and began repairs on it. And it's now a beautiful place and a tourist destination that you can go and visit Bolt Castle and, and encountered the incredible beauty of this place. But whenever you visit, I think part of the, the strange allure of Bolt, Bolt Castle, and it's part of the strange sense that you have when you visit it, is the tragic story that's so tied to it. That here was this, this castle, this island built, and a castle built, and this expression of love from a husband to his wife, and the tragic story that she never got to experience it. They never got to live there. For all the anticipation, you can nearly feel the anticipation of a family living down in New York City, looking forward to the day when they would move up to the Thousand Islands and move up to this island, their very own island, their very own castle, and get to live there in this house. This house was supposed to have six towers, 127 rooms, 30 bathrooms. I don't know about you, but I think 30 bathrooms is a little excessive for a family of four. <laughs> Well, you got to go and you got to go. I guess when you got that many rooms, you got to have a bathroom handy. But you can almost feel the anticipation of this house, and yet they never got to live there. What are we waiting for? What are we hoping for? We're in the second week of our series called Afterlife, where we're looking at what our hope is. And as N.T. Wright says, what are we waiting for and what do we do in the meantime? What, where do we go from here? And we're looking at what happens on the other side of eternity for us. And Jesus said, in my Father's house, are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
And he describes and paints a picture for us of a house of many rooms. I don't know how many bathrooms there are in heaven. Someday we'll find out. We'll get to count together. I have a feeling it's more than 30. Or maybe there's none. Maybe we don't need to do that in heaven. Uh, that sounds pretty wonderful, actually. Uh, but this, this one passage in John chapter 14 was, is where Jesus paints a picture of heaven that has greater detail than maybe any other place about what heaven is going to be like. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What is heaven? What are we looking forward to in heaven? What, what do we have? What do we know about what we have our hopes in for heaven? And what can we anticipate when we get there? So we're going to look this morning at John chapter 14, beginning of verse 1, the words of Jesus. But before we do, I just want to welcome you this morning. Victory is a church of multiple locations, painted post-New York, Elmira, New York, and online, wherever in the world you may be. And I also want to remind you that next Sunday is our annual meeting at 1230 after the service right here at the Painted Post campus. We'll have our annual meeting. It's when we elect our board and we approve the budget for the coming year. And we'll be talking kind of a state of the church of where we are and where we're going in the, in the years to come. So again, next Sunday, lunch is provided. Uh, if you're attending the meeting, if you're not attending the meeting, don't scan and scram on, on that meal. We'd love for you to be part of the, if you're going to eat, you've got to stay and sit through the, the business reports. But we're, uh, we're looking forward to that time of celebration together next week. But again, John chapter 14, we're going to talk about heaven this morning and what Jesus promises to us. But before we jump into the word, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this day. Today is a gift. We thank you for waking us up this morning, for the breath in our lungs, and help us to walk in step with you and to feel uh, the covering of your hand and your blessing over us. Help us to keep in step with you and for our hearts and our ears to be attentive to you as we read your word. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen. John 14.1 begins, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Before we read anything else, this is a passage where Jesus is talking about our hope in heaven, what, what is to come next for us on the other side of eternity. And the first thing he says is, don't sweat it. Trust God, trust me, it's all going to be good. And this is an important starting point for us to, to remember that, that we can trust God, that he is trustworthy. As we talked about last week, we can trust God with eternity because he's so trustworthy. And there's a lot, if I ask you what, what heaven looked like to you, if you paint a picture or to draw a picture or describe it in words, what heaven looks like. We might be picturing harps or clouds or angels or, or golf courses or tennis courts, or you might be asking questions about what, whether there's bathrooms in heaven or whether or not bathrooms live in heaven, whether you can watch the Bills game in heaven or not. And all these, these questions that kind of come to our minds about heaven and, and the afterlife. But this is what we know for sure. Number one, a couple things I want to share with you. But, but this we know, that in America, as religious participation is on the decline, belief in the afterlife continues to grow. And they find that 80% of Americans believe in the afterlife. This is really interesting. This comes from a University of Chicago study, a professor there who found that even though religious participation and religious service attendance is declining, belief in the afterlife is actually continuing to grow despite that, unaffiliated with any formal religious instruction or training, that, we, that more people than ever in the United States believe in the afterlife. Uh, in fact, there's a, a study from the University of, of, University, of uh, University of Virginia, a professor there, who's found that 10 to 20% of people who experience cardiac arrest and who are resuscitated, who are revived, 10 to 20% of those people have what they call a near-death experience. And when they interview people who've had a near-death experience, there's some common themes that come out of that. Often there's a sense of peace, there's a sense of of feeling good, there's a sense of kind of being outside of your body, there's a sense of tranquility that comes with that's with, a common theme of near-death experiences. 
But they said what's really interesting when they, when they interview people who've had one of these near-death experiences is how many of them change their life after the fact. How many of them find that they can't just go back to the way that they were before, regardless of whether they were Christian or not, regardless of whether they were religious or not before that experience, after they've had this near-death experience, after they've dipped their toe in eternity, they come back feeling like something's got to change. People who are in really cutthroat industries come back and just find like they can't do that anymore. People who are workaholics come back and they find they've got to find a new balance and rhythm to their life that they did not have before. People who, who maybe were on the edge of taking advantage of people and belittling people before change their tone and change their behavior when they get back. And there's something, but whatever's happening in these near-death experiences, whatever is, is really happening there, they found that from a secular standpoint, it changes people. When they, when they dip their toe in the waters of eternity, they find that they come back reevaluating their life and looking at their life different than they had before. So, whatever's happening there, we know, we, there's so much we don't know about heaven, but we know that Jesus says, trust in God, trust also in me. And this is an important starting point for us that Whatever we know or don't know about heaven, we don't trust God because of the rewards he's going to give us. We don't trust him because of the the great castle built on an island for us that he's got promised to us someday. We trust him because of who he is and his character. And he goes on in verse 2 saying, My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. And he paints this picture, this promise of heaven and his father's house as being this house with many, many rooms, this house that has, has place for all of us. And this is the second thing I want to share, that heaven is a promise of paradise. Heaven is a promise of paradise. And, and paradise is the word that even Jesus used as he was hanging on the cross and he turned to the thief who was next to him and said, I promise you this day you will be with me in paradise. Paradise, this, this picture of of what heaven is like, the best description of it is truly, it's bliss, it's paradise. It's, it's this restful garden where people who are in Christ get to experience peace and comfort and paradise. And yet to, to try to describe paradise to somebody is really difficult. This is one of the challenges we have with the descriptions of heaven in the Bible is that it's describing someplace we can't picture. Can you imagine trying to describe the, the beach to somebody who's never been around to see sand or the ocean? Trying to describe the, the beach to someone who hasn't seen sand or the ocean, they'd, be, they'd come away with the sense of, of crabs that are nipping your toes and seagulls are going to swoop in and steal your sandwich and a place where you're destined to get skin cancer. Like, this sounds awful. Why would you want to go to this place? And or if you're trying to describe singing to someone who's never heard music, it's like talking, only louder and longer, and you move your voice up and down. It sounds really bizarre if you've never heard music, but singing is beautiful. It's really hard to describe something like paradise to people who, who haven't seen it, who don't have ways of describing it. And, and yet this is the promise that God gives us. That, that we have this promise of paradise, that it will be wonderful. And we know this, number three, that there are actually two heavens. There is heaven and there is capital H heaven. This comes from Scott McKnight, who's a professor out in Illinois. And he says that there is the heaven that exists right now. If this is maybe a more helpful way to describe it, there is the present heaven and then there is the future heaven. There is the present, which is where God is right now. And this is the present where those who are dead in Christ are now with the Lord right now in eternity in, in the lowercase heaven. And this is the promise that we have for us. This is paradise. And as N.T. Wright says, heaven is, uh, is the control room of heaven. Heaven is the control room for earth. Heaven is the CEO's office from which earth 
is run. I think we got that quote. We can put that up on the screen. Heaven is the control room for earth. Heaven is the CEO's office from which earth is run. That's the sense that heaven is where God is. Heaven is where what God wants to have happen happens, and it's where he's monitoring activity on earth. But then there is the ultimate heaven, the capital H heaven, the future heaven, which is when the new heaven and the new earth will come, and that will also be paradise, and it will be wonderful, and the Lord will be with us, and he'll wipe every tear from our eyes. And so we've got this kind of two-layer hope of heaven, the lowercase heaven and the capital H heaven, and we're looking forward to both of these. And Jesus says in verse 4, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And here Thomas is, is asking this question that is, he's putting his finger on something we talked about briefly last week. In Ecclesiastes 3, it says that the Lord has put eternity in our hearts. And we have this sense of longing for something we can't, can't quite grasp. That even though we live temporal and mortal lives, there is this, this sense placed in our hearts, placed in our soul by our creator, where he creates a longing in us for heaven. And this is the fourth thing, that we are born homesick for heaven. Heaven isn't just a reward that we're looking forward to someday. Heaven is this homesickness in your gut that you can't quite shake. There's an atheist named Bertrand Russell who uh, lived about 100 years ago. And in 1917, he wrote a letter that was really famous at the time where he described this elusive sense of longing that he could never quite put his finger on. He had this, despite his firm conviction that there was no God, that there was no heaven, that, the, that this life was all there was, he described in this letter in 1917, there is this longing within him that he couldn't quite capture, couldn't quite describe. There's a German word for this. It's called Sehnsucht. It doesn't quite translate well into English, but Sehnsucht is this sense of yearning or of longing or of homesickness. Sehnsucht is the idea that, that we always feel a little bit homesick as long as we're this, on this side of heaven. My daughter Hannah was, was a young girl. She went to a basketball camp at Houghton. We lived at, in, in Houghton at the time, just about a mile from Houghton University. And she was spending her first night away at a camp, and it was a basketball camp. And it felt a little funny to have her spend the night on campus since we lived right there. If, if I could have stood on my back porch and thrown a stone and hit the dorm where she was sleeping from our house if I was good at throwing things. But, uh, so she's down there on the campus, and she's enjoying the basketball camp. And that night, her very first night at this camp, uh, just as I was drifting off to sleep, my phone rang, and it was her. And I, I answered and said, hey, honey, how are you doing? And, and I could tell by her voice something wasn't right. And she said, Dad, I'm scared. And immediately, I'm in protective dad mode. Immediately, like, I'm, I'm awake now. She's scared. So I said, what's wrong? What's happening? Are you okay? And she said, yeah, I'm okay. okay. Where are you? I'm in my dorm room. Everything was fine. I said, I began to ask her a series of questions. Is somebody being mean to you? Is somebody not being nice to you? Or do you feel safe in the dorm? Door? I will come and rescue you. I will come and knock down that building if I need you. Whatever is standing between me and my daughter who's scared, I will take care of it. And uh, she's, no, no, that's all fine. People are being nice. I'm having a wonderful time. I'm just scared. So I began to pry this a little more. And eventually she said, I just miss you guys. I said, oh, yeah, right? <laughs> and, and I began to ask a few more questions. And eventually I said, I think you're homesick. And she said, is that what this feels like? <laughs> and I said, well, you've been homesick before, right? And she said, no. And, and we began to realize that up until that point, she had never spent a night away from, from us as a family. Even if she had spent a, a night away from Tammy and I, she had been with her brothers and with grandparents of some sort or another. And, and she had never been really on her own away from us. Even though she was just a mile from us, this was the first time she felt homesick. And homesickness can feel like fear. Homesickness can feel like this 
longing for something you can't quite grasp. Homesickness can feel like an itch that you can't quite scratch. And we are born homesick for heaven. Without even being able to really describe what this paradise is like, without even having a real sense of what it means to have this house of many, many rooms where Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. Yet we have this longing within our hearts, a sense that we are homesick and that there's something missing. And we, even if we can't quite put our finger on it, that's what it is. And probably at some point in your life, you felt this inner longing, the sense of homesickness, a, a time when you've achieved everything you hoped you could have achieved, and yet there's still this aching sense of things not quite being right. Or you've bottomed out and you realize things are not quite right and there's nothing you can do to make it so. It's a sense of homesickness that God has placed in your heart to make you long for your heavenly home. And so, we know that there is a paradise that is promised to us. We know that the vast majority of people, whether they are Christians or not, believe in an afterlife. We know that there is the, the present heaven that if, if we were to die today, we would go to that heaven if we we're in Christ and we would be in paradise with the Lord. And yet there is this greater fulfillment, the capital H heaven, the, the heaven that is to come. And we know that, that we are born with this nagging sense that we belong someplace where we are not. But in the meantime, number five, until then, we are to be a colony of heaven on earth. In the meantime, we are to be a colony of heaven on earth. We are to be a counterculture. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that what's up there would come down here. We are to be a colony of heaven, a, a group of people who, who belong in that world, who are yet in this world, creating a little colony of heaven on earth, creating a counterculture. So that in a world of greed, in a culture of greed, we create a counterculture of generosity. In a, in a culture where everybody's getting as much as they can and stuff in their pockets and stuff in their attics and stuffing storage units, we are a counterculture of generosity. In a culture of selfishness, we are a counterculture of selflessness, giving of ourselves and putting others before ourselves, not putting number one first, but knowing that we are second to the people who are around us. We're called to love God and to love our neighbors. And so we are in a culture of selfishness. We are a counterculture of selflessness. In a culture of death, we are a counterculture of life. In a culture that, that doesn't know what to do with life before birth and, and sees life at the extreme old age as an inconvenience, we are a culture of life. We believe in the sanctity of life from, from conception until natural death, and we are on the side of life, and we believe that life is sacred. It's a gift from God. And so in a culture of death, we are a colony of heaven. We are a colony of life in a culture of death, and we stand on the side of life because life is precious. Even though we have our hope in heaven, yet we stand on the side of life. In a culture of outrage, we, are, we stand on the side of gentleness. We are a counterculture of gentleness. If I can be really honest, there have been times when I am not politically neutral, and I hope that you don't ever get a sense of who I might be voting for. I think I failed as a pastor if you ever get that sense from me. But I am not politically neutral, and there was a time in my life where I had heard some voices in my life who made me think that this one particular election was the most important election of my life. It's kind of funny how that works, that about every four years, people are saying the same thing. This is the election. This is the most important election of our lifetimes. It's amazing how that keeps happening. And there was one particular election cycle where I was just bound up in knots over listening to political commentary and reading articles and watching interviews and, and ingesting cable news like it was going to go off the air the next week. And what I found was that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. In my life, the fruit of a heavy diet of cable news and political commentary was rage, malice, and anger. 
And there are a whole lot of people who, who you know more about what's going on with the, the UN than you know what's going on with your neighbors. And there is this anger. And what I found was happening in me was that I was, I was alert. I was up to date on everything that was happening around the world. The people I would never meet. The only control they had over me maybe was the price of gas. But they really didn't have that much of an impact on, the, on the, really my day-to-day life. And I was so angry. Great things were happening in my life. I have a wonderful family and a wonderful life. I was pastoring a wonderful church, and I was just angry all the time. And I realized that the fruit of all that political commentary and all that garbage in my life was to just make me angry when the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. In a culture of outrage, we are a counterculture of gentleness. In a culture where people hate their enemies, we are a counterculture where we love our enemies. We bless our enemies. In an, in an age and in a culture where there's the mob mentality, where we lynch people who disagree with us, where we, we pummel them, where we write angry letters, we come after them. If you happen to disagree with us in any way, we are a counterculture of people who love our enemies and show kindness to those who don't show kindness to us and love people who don't love us. We are bringing a little bit of heaven down to earth. In a culture where there's so much confusion around gender and sexuality, we are a counterculture of purity. It's, this is a confusing time to be alive. It's a confusing time to be a teenager or a young person. It's a confusing time to be middle-aged. And, and the, it, we live in a culture that is wrestling with really heavy issues in ways that my parents and grandparents never had to deal with. And, and we don't begin with our beginning point at what our culture says or what the media says. We begin with what God's Word says. I don't get to begin with what I want to be true, what I wish was true, what would be easier if it was true, but with what God says. And in a culture that is questioning things like gender and marriage and sexuality, we begin with this firm conviction that in the beginning, God created them male and female. And his plan is for one man and one woman and, and for keeps. And while there is incredible sacrifice, there is incredible pain and discomfort that comes with, with keeping in step with God's plan for these things. Yet we know that God's got this divine imprint on the uniqueness of maleness and femaleness and this, this, this divine plan of marriage is so beautiful and unique that though there is pain and discomfort with not being aligned with that, our hearts break because we know that there's even more pain and even more discomfort with being in violation of that. So in a, in a culture of great confusion around sexuality and gender, we are a counterculture purity. And we're bringing a little bit of heaven on earth. We're trying to be a counterculture in a culture of death, a colony of heaven on earth, praying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Until we, while we wait for what the life will be to come, while we wait, bring it down here. We want it, we just, we can't wait to be part of it so much that we want to be part of that now. And yet there's this question, Thomas asked this question, how do we get there? We don't know the way, and this is what Jesus answers, verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is important. Heaven is real. There's a promise of paradise for us. There is the, the, the heaven that exists right now, and then there is the fulfillment of that and the promise of heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem that we will get to attain one day. And the way there, the path, this is the last thing, number six, the path to heaven is not a formula. The path to heaven is not a matter of ABC or XYZ. The path to heaven is not about good deeds. The path to heaven is a person. 
Jesus Christ. The path to heaven, the way to get in on this, the way to enter into this is a person. There's nothing we can do. What you don't need is a new government. What you don't need is, is better behavior. What you don't need is, is someone to come alongside. You don't need a better car. You don't need a better house. You don't need a better spouse. What you need is Jesus. The path to heaven, both lowercase heaven, capital H heaven, and heaven on earth, the path to heaven is Jesus Christ. It's a person. And Jesus says, in my Father's house are many, many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you so. And I'm going there to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. And he ends all this saying, verse 7, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. We live in a broken world, and we are a little bit of a colony of heaven on earth, a, a, a little piece of heaven dropped here on earth, living a countercultural life, but all of it's for naught if Jesus isn't at the center of it. You know, Bolt Castle has been restored to the point where people can visit. And as I mentioned, Tammy and I have visited there on our honeymoon. We've been back for subsequent visits with our families. I highly recommend it. I think it's about three and a half hours north of here on the American side of the Thousand Islands. Um, and crews are working there every day. They're constantly, there was a while there where they were just working to make it stable, and then they worked to get it up to the point that it was when Mr. Bolt abandoned the plans. And now they're way beyond that point, and it's, it's just an incredibly beautiful place. Even if you've been there five or ten years ago, without a doubt, there are things that are, that are even improved upon since you were there. But no one lives there. You cannot spend the night at Bolt Castle. At the end of the day, for as many people flock to Bolt Castle, as many people walk through the rooms and look in the rooms and drool and ooh and ah over what could have been, at the end of the day, everybody goes home. But Jesus said, in my Father's house are many rooms, and you can come and you can stay, and we'll, you'll be with me forever. But the door, the gate to heaven, is Christ. And that's the ultimate question. Whatever else is going on in your life, the ultimate question of your life is, how, what is your answer to Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus? And to throw yourself at his mercies, to throw yourself at him and say, Lord Jesus, I want to have peace with you. I've had that sense of homesickness that has been there my whole life. Sometimes it's felt like fear. Sometimes it's felt like dread. Sometimes it's felt like this itch that I can't quite scratch sometimes and it's felt like this longing for something that is just beyond my reach and now I realize it's a homesickness for you to be with you and to be in your presence. Would you pray with me? Lord, we long to be with you. We long to be in your presence. to have peace with our God. And we have had that sense of longing, sense of restlessness, sense of an itch that we can't quite reach. We long for you. We know that you are the only way, the way, the truth, path to heaven. And so maybe this morning, for the first time, or maybe you, you made a decision a long time ago and it's time to come home. Lord Jesus, I want to come home. I've been off on my own. 
I've squandered so much on a life that amounted to nothing. Can I come home? To, To be a part of his heaven on earth right here and now. To be at peace with you, to know your goodness and your love for me. And to know that I know that when this life for me on earth is over, that I will be with you for eternity in paradise. Still have so many questions about what that's going to look like, Lord, but I trust you. And I trust you with me my whole life, every ounce of it. We pray this in Jesus' name.